storms in our life. Great song, Till the Storm Passes By. You listen.
continue singing Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed to His infinite mercy. His child and
God, we thank you so much for this day, Father. I thank you so much for the young ladies that will be here later this morning with the Navarro soccer team. I ask that you bless them as they come today. Father, thank you again for all your blessings. We thank you for Jesus and what he has done for us and for our lives, Father. Please be with Brother Danny today as he preaches. I ask that you open our ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for being in worship today. Uh, Brother Steve and I have our red and black on, ready to receive our Navarro um, soccer team, and we're excited about that. There's supposed to be 37 of them with us in the service, and we hope there may be some others that trail in. Last Sunday, we had the Corsicana High School varsity tennis team, and I think with parents and all, there were about 45 or so that came as guests of ours. And so each one of these, we're wanting to present the gospel to them. And we pray that Jesus Christ uh, speaks to their heart, that they listen, that they obey, and maybe that they'll come and find this as their church home. I'm so glad that you're in worship today. It is an exciting morning, and I'm always excited to get into this pulpit. And today, our sermon begins back in 1979. In 1979, four sisters from Philadelphia, the Sister Sledge, recorded their only number one hit they ever recorded. You may know the song. It was called, We Are Family. All my other sisters and me, right? And that same year, the Pittsburgh Pirates adopted that song as their own. And you may remember that Willie Stargell, through his talent, led the Pirates to their World Series title. It was the last one Pittsburgh has won to date. But there is something about families, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Families are truly intriguing because they are the source, I believe, of our greatest joys in life and sometimes our deepest heartaches. Uh, There's more emotion attached to the family unit than any other unit in society. And today we're going to find that Jesus has some revolutionary words about family in the passage that we're going to be studying this morning. But before we get to that, I want to remind us, if you haven't been with us, we are in an ongoing study of the New Testament book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark. It's one of four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the second one in chronological order. But I want you to know it was the first one that was written, and Matthew, Luke, and John used Mark's Gospel as source material. Uh, We also know it was not written by Mark. It was actually a first-hand account of the Apostle Peter, and his recording secretary was John Mark. And thankfully, John Mark just tagged his name right there on it. And so very interesting that that happened in history. But the title of the message today, it's our fifth sermon in this series, is We Are Family. So now I want us to hear those revolutionary words that Jesus said about family. Take your Bibles and go ahead and stand with me one last time. Um, As we honor the reading of God's Word today, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, uh, two different locations, first verses 20 and 21, and then we're going to skip over to verse 31 through 35. So let's begin in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. I want us to get into this because this reveals to us how Jesus' family at this time were viewing him. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family, his biological family, heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. So that's the way Jesus' family was thinking. Uh, They thought Jesus Christ, this brother of theirs, this son of theirs, they thought he was out of his mind. And then skip over to verse 31, because now the real encounter when Jesus responds Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. 
A crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, Jesus asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Now, obviously, today, my prayer for us is this, that we, as the people of God, as the First Baptist family, that we would love each other and that we would see each other as true brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's say it together. We are family. We're family. God bless you. Be seated. Now, I love how I'm going to begin right here because I read a a list recently of the five most overused words in the American vocabulary. If you have, have you ever been in the Reeves household and listened to to Danny Reeves talk to his kids, um, I sometimes am pretty critical of these overused words. And so I'm very blessed somebody else has seen it like me. And so here's the countdown for you, the five most overused words in the American vocabulary, the five most overused words of the Reeves children, all right? Here we go, number five, literally. The word literally. This word is used by literally everyone, everyone for literally everything, all right? Uh, number four, the word awesome. I'm not sure if everything in life can be totally awesome, dude, right? Uh, number three, whatever. Whatever. It can be used harmlessly, right? Or what it, like whatever you choose, or as a sarcastic, and I'll bet you use it this way, whatever, right? And then my favorite, sarcastically, of all the most overused words is the word like. Have you heard the way young people are using this word today? You can use it to say you like ice cream and that's just fine. Or misuse it by saying you like everything is like weird, like my dad is goofy, like this sermon is amazing, like, 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 like. If you've been around young people today, they way overuse like. Some mom and dad say amen. All right. Now, the most overused word in the American vocabulary, according to this author, is the word greatest. Everyone claims to have the greatest hits. Everybody says they've tasted the greatest food. That was the greatest trip. Oh, it was the greatest game. And to that, I just want to say literally whatever. All right. Now, this morning, I want to talk to you about three of the greatest things in life. Here I go, okay? The greatest relationship, the greatest family, and the greatest goal, I think it's going to be like awesome to talk about these things. Here we go, all right? Life's greatest relationship is knowing Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen to that. Life's greatest relationship is knowing Jesus Christ. For 12 years, I've been your pastor, and I have hammered down this truth again and again, that salvation is not about religion, it's about a relationship. That God Almighty wants a relationship with you and me. And we can have a relationship with Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this, if I gave you a test... And it was a fill-in-the-blank statement, only one sentence, right, of how would you complete this sentence? Eternal life is blank, 
blank. Think about it. Eternal life is blank, blank. Now, some of you might insert the words, eternal life is living forever. But if you're miserable in this life, why would you want to live forever, right? Uh, The correct answer, let me just jump right to it, eternal life is knowing Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 3. Now, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, the Apostle Paul was one of the most religious people in history. And we know his story, I would imagine, before he was Paul, he was Saul. But when he was Saul, he was lost without Jesus. In Philippians, he talks about his religious pedigree, and it's quite amazing. He says he was born a Jew. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He meticulously kept the law, the entire law. He was so zealous for his religion that he arrested and persecuted Christians who were considered a threat to Judaism. But then, here's the the powerful part of the story, then he met Jesus Christ And he realized his religion was worthless. And what's more, Paul said, listen to these words. He said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He said, I consider all of those things, all of those religious things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul said that he compared knowing Jesus. Everything on his life compared to that was just rubbish. Folks, it's the Greek word skubala. Say it out loud. Skubala. You know what it means? It means stinking sewage. Now get into Paul's statement. I consider all those things stinking sewage compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Now here's my question. And I've asked myself this week, just thinking about Paul's words, is that my belief? That everything else is just like stinking garbage compared to knowing Jesus Christ. Is knowing Jesus such a life-changing passion for you that compared to it, everything else is just garbage? And, And let me clarify this. Knowing Jesus is not the same thing as knowing facts about Jesus. Sometimes we get this confused. I mean, I know facts about Abraham Lincoln, but let's be honest, none of us ever knew Abraham Lincoln. I know facts about Dwight D. Eisenhower, but I never knew President Eisenhower. But when I met Jesus at six years old, I knew then and I know now he's more real to me than the carpet on this floor. He's more real to me than anything that we are gathered in today. Folks, there's going to be a time that all of this goes away, but Jesus Christ is still going to be large and in charge. Somebody say amen, right? The most important relationship in the world is knowing Jesus Christ. Life's greatest relationship. Let's talk about life's greatest family. Life's greatest relationship, knowing Christ. Life's greatest family, the church. The church Now, in our story today, we've already alluded to this, Jesus' family thought he was bonkers. They thought Jesus was crazy. So what they're doing, if you read in the text very clearly, they're going for a family intervention. They wanted to take Jesus back home to Nazareth to avoid any public family embarrassment. 
But then Jesus came out with this revolutionary statement. Who are my brothers and mother? And then to all these people gathered around him, he does this with his hands, I can just see. He says, this is my family. Whoever does the will of my father are my brothers and sister and mother. Now let's be clear, Jesus wasn't rejecting his earthly family. He was just stating that a spiritual connection is stronger than a biological connection. And we need to hear that today. Let me say it again. A spiritual connection is stronger than a biological connection. Now that flies in the face of the phrase that we know. Have you ever heard the phrase, blood is thicker than water? We've heard that, right? What does that mean? It literally means, it implies that family ties are stronger than friendship bonds, right? But I I want to rework it today, and I want to establish a new phrase right here for our church, for us, for God's people. Here it is. Jesus' blood is thicker than family blood. Jesus' blood is thicker than family blood. In other words, Jesus is saying this. He's teaching that the most important family in the world is the family of God, the church. And I think we can compare today the biological family with the spiritual family because there are similarities. Let's talk about those similarities right quick. Here, here's several things. First, God's family isn't perfect. Now, let me ask you today, could you raise your hand if I, if I asked you, anybody raise your hand if your biological family is absolutely perfect? Raise your hand. No way, right? You can't say that. I can't say that. No one can say that. One man described families like this. This is hilarious. He said, families are like fudge, mostly sweet with a few nuts, right? <laughs> and just like our biological families aren't perfect, the same is true with the church. I think the motto of any church can be this, and I think it applies to every church I've ever been in. Some people are easy to love, and some are easier to love, right? Some people are easy to love, and some are easier to love. And sometimes people leave a church because there's a member they don't like. But guess what happens? They go and join another church, and they find another person they don't like. That's because churches are not perfect. I found this poem. I hope you've heard it. Hear it again. If you should find the perfect church without one fault or smear, for goodness sake, don't join that church. You'll spoil the atmosphere. If you should find the perfect church where all anxieties cease, then pass it by, lest by joining it you mar the masterpiece. But since no perfect church exists made of imperfect men, then let's cease looking for that church and love the church we're in. Friends, God's family isn't perfect, but boy, I love it. Somebody say amen if you love the church. I love the church. God's family isn't perfect. Let me say this in addition. God's family cares for one another in tough times. We know this to be true. It's it's the same with biological families. Families come together when there's sickness, don't they? Families come together when there's death, when you lose someone you love. They help each other when someone has lost a job, when you've lost a place to live. And that's what families do. That's how families operate. And God's family is the same in that capacity. And the Bible says this, I think it's a great comparison for us, that we, the church, are like a human body. Paul gives us that comparison. And do you know what happens in the human body when one part is hurting? The other parts rush in to help that hurting part. Think about it this way. 
I smash my thumb with a hammer, what happens? Okay, think about it. If I hit my thumb with a hammer, the other hand immediately drops the hammer and holds the thumb, right? In addition to that, the adrenaline glands start pumping in my body. The arteries start rushing blood to that area. My vocal cords kick in and they say, ow, and I hope that's all they say, right? And I probably stick my thumb in my mouth and suck on it, something like that, okay? And that's how the body operates. The other parts of the body assist the hurting member. The church is a body. We're not an organization. We're a living organism. We are the body of Jesus Christ. That's how Paul describes it. And we care for each other when we're going through tough times. Right now, if you're hurting, the church is ready to rush around you. Just let us know your need and we'll be there for you. God's family cares for one another in tough times. The third similarity with a biological family, God's family celebrates together. Now, families that I know love to celebrate together. Just look on social media. We're at this party, we're at this anniversary, we're at this celebration. Somebody got a job, somebody got an award at school. And all those things we're celebrating, right? And sadly, some churches don't get this. Let me ask you, have you ever been connected to one of those churches where worship is solemn and quiet and boring? You, you couldn't laugh in that church because it was sacrilegious to even smile. I'm glad when Steve stands up here and says, hey, tell your face that you love Jesus. I like that. I like that. We're a smiling church. And these churches that are boring, those kind of churches that start at 11 o'clock sharp and end at 12 noon dull, right? You've been in those churches? Let me say this. I'm glad this church realizes that worship is a celebration. Friends, we are not here to mourn a corpse. We're here to celebrate a conqueror because Jesus Christ is alive and we celebrate his resurrection every single Sunday. You better say a big amen. Amen. All right. He's alive. Jesus is alive. Worship is alive. Worship is celebration. I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God, aren't you? If you're looking for a church family today, FBC is a place where God gives you a ready-made family. Life's greatest family is the church. Life's greatest relationship is knowing Christ. Let's move to the third thing. Life's greatest goal, according to the passage, doing God's will. What did Jesus say? Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister And my mother. Notice he didn't say father. He already had a heavenly father, right? But whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. In other words, Jesus said the birthmark of the members of God's family is those who strive to do the will of God. Let me ask you, what's your definition of success? Is it becoming independently wealthy? Is it Advancing in business until you're finally at the pinnacle of your career track. For a Christian, we have to think differently because the biblical definition of success is finding and following the will of God. We've talked about that recently in sermons. That success is finding and following God's will. God's will is such an important concept, it's mentioned 64 times in your New Testament. So let's talk about three quick truths about God's will. How many of us want to accomplish God's will in our life? Raise your hand. You say, Pastor, I do want to do God's will, right? Let me talk about three quick things. 
God's will never contradicts God's word. God's will never contradicts God's word. We all know people who have done strange and terrible things because in their own words, God told me to do that. Now, we ought to be careful there, okay? But hear me, God does speak. And the main way God speaks is through his word. If you're not in your Bible every single day, you're missing out on God revealing his will to do. If you immerse yourself daily in God's word, he'll use it to speak to you. If you get into God's word, you get to know God so intimately that he can guide you. Trust me, his word will never contradict his will. The second thing about God's will, it's always good for you. God's will is always good for you. And we need to say that. And we need to say that in our society because some people are afraid to surrender to God's will because they think God's going to make them stop having any fun. Let me clarify the thought for you today. God's will, hear me clearly, will lead you to the most enjoyment that you could ever imagine on this side of heaven. God's will is great. God's will is good. God's will is enjoyable. God's will is fulfilling, right? And I think about it this way as an earthly father, as a dad, I only want what's best for my kids. Same for you dads, right? Same for you moms. I want their lives to be filled with good and not harm. And our Heavenly Father is the same way, all right? So please hear this today. God's will is always good for you. Let me give you a third thing about God's will. You won't know God's will unless you're willing to do God's will. Let's talk about buying a car. We're not going to do Carvana. I don't even know how you begin to shop for a car that you've never seen. But, But here's the way I see it, okay? When you buy a car, it's a good idea to take it for a test drive. You're supposed to kick the tires. You're supposed to check the history. You're supposed to do your homework before you buy it. But some people, here's the analogy, they want to take God's will for a test drive. And they say to God something like this, God, tell me what you've got planned for me, and then I'll decide if I want to do it or not. Have you ever had that thought before God? God, if you just show me the plan, then I'd decide if I really am interested or not. A lot of people think that way. But let me say this to you. If that's the way you want to roll with God, I'm so sorry. That's not how it works. You can't take God's will for a test drive. You have to be willing to do it in order to know it. You see, sometimes we want to see the end of God's plan, but God's more interested in showing us only the very next step. Let me tell you this story. Little Jimmy went to visit his grandparents. They lived out in the country on a farm. It was a wonderful time for Jimmy. He enjoyed going there. And and one night the grandmother asked him to go out to the barn and feed the cow. The problem was it was dark. And Jimmy said, but Grandma, I can't see the barn. It's too dark. And the grandmother stood on the back porch and she said, well, can you see the well? Yes, ma'am. We'll walk to the well. And when he got to the well, she said, hey, can you see the apple tree? Yes, ma'am, I can see the apple tree. Walk to the apple tree. Jimmy, now can you see the barn? Yes, ma'am. Then Jimmy, go feed the cow, right? And I think that's the way God does it. Early on in my life, I didn't know I'd be standing at First Baptist Corsicana. 
But all along the way, with each step by step by step by step, God said, go here and go there and go here and go there. And all of a sudden, I see clearly exactly the path that God's had me on the whole way. Folks, be willing to take the next step, even if you can't see the final destination. You won't know God's will unless you're willing to do God's will. You see, our attitude should be, here I am, Lord, send me. That your answer is already yes. Life's greatest relationship is what? Knowing Jesus. Do you know him? Life's greatest family is what? The church. Are you involved in a local church to the depth that you can say, hey, we are family. And life's greatest goal is what? Doing God's will. Are you doing God's will? I'm going to close with this story. In the days before radio and, and radar, ship captains had this ingenious way of sailing into narrow harbors at night. They used lighthouses. And those lighthouses were not there to sail toward them, right? You were supposed to avoid them. That was a warning light. And in this particular harbor where it was oh so narrow, the, the lighthouse kept the captains away from the rocks. But these captains developed this ingenious way to make their way through the narrow passage. They, they looked into the town and they saw three smaller lights on top of the towers of the buildings in town. And when they lined up those three lights and kept the bow of the boat pointed toward those, then the ship would arrive safely in the harbor. Let's close with this. Let's say you're seeking God's will for some important decision. And and I believe I'm saying this today to someone who's in this position who's trying to know God's will, all right? Here's the three points. If you're seeking it, there are three simple lights that you can line up, I believe, to find God's will for your life. First, I already mentioned this, the Word of God. Start with the Word of God. If God's Word tells you to do something, then like Nike, just do it, okay? Just do it. The second light, the voice of the Holy Spirit in your heart. And remember, that voice will never contradict God's Word. They're not going to be in contrast with one another. God's Word, that still small voice of the Holy Spirit. The third light, the counsel of godly people, godly friends, mentors, trusted believers in Jesus. If you're seeking God's will, line up those three lights and you'll usually avoid the rocks of life.